0: section 5 of mystery at geneva an improbable tale of singular happenings this librivox recording in the public domain mystery at geneva an improbable tale of singular happenings by dame rose Macaulay. chapter 17 and now said dr frankie as he enjoyed a cigar and henry's cigarette and both their liqueurs let us talk of this mysterious business of poor Svensen. yes do let's Said Henry, for this was much more in his line, I may misjudge you, Mr. Beechtree, but I have made a guess that you entertain certain suspicions in this matter. Is that the case? Oh, I see, I am right. No, tell me nothing you do not wish. In fact, tell me nothing at all. It would be at this point indiscreet. instead, let us go through all the possible alternatives. He paused and puffed at his cigar for a while in thoughtful silence. First of all,' he presently resumed, "'poor Svensson may have met with an accident. He may have fallen into the lake and have been drowned. But this we will set aside as improbable. Geneva is seldom quite deserted at night, and he would have attracted attention. Besides which, I have heard that he is an excellent swimmer. No, an improbable contingency. What remains? Foul play. Some person or persons have attacked him in a deserted spot, and either murdered or kidnapped him.' But who, and for what purpose, robbery, personal enmity, revenge, or an impersonal motive such as a desire, for some reason, to damage and retard the doings of the assembly? It might be any of these. Let us for a moment take the hypothesis that it is the last. To whom, then, might such a desire be attributed? Unfortunately, my dear mister Beechtree, to many different persons. But more to some than to others, Henry brightly pointed out. "'Certainly more to some than to others. More to the Poles than to the Lithuanians, for instance, for is it not to the Polish interest to hold up the proceedings of the Assembly, while the present violation of the Lithuanian frontier by Polish hordes continues? Well they know that any inquiry into that matter set on foot by the League would end in their discomfiture. Every day that they can retard the appointment of a committee of inquiry is to the good from their point of view. Again take Russia.' The question of the persecution of the Bolsheviks is to be brought up in the assembly early. Naturally, the Russian delegation are not anxious for the exposure of their governmental methods which would accompany this. And then there are the Bolshevik refugees themselves, a murderous gang who would readily dispose of anyone, for mere habit. Nor can Argentine be supposed to be anxious for the inquiry into her dispute with Paraguay, which the Paraguay delegation intend to bring forward the Argentine delegation may well have orders to delay this inquiry as long as possible, in order that the dispute may arrange itself domestically in Argentine interests without the intervention of the League. There is, too, the Greco-Turkish war, which both the Greeks and the Turks desire to carry on in peace. There are also several questions of humanitarian legislation which by no means all the members of the League desire to see proceeded with, the traffic in women, for instance, and that in certain drugs. And what about the Irish delegates? Are they not both, for their different reasons, full of anger and discontent against Great Britain and against Europe in general? And may they not well intend, in the determined manner of their race, to hold up the association of nations at the pistol's mouth, so to speak, until it considers their grievances and adjudicates in their favour? And then we must not exclude from suspicion the natives of this city in canton. Calvinists are, in my experience, capable of any malicious crime— Adore, jealous, unpleasant people. They might, and often have they done so, perpetrate any wickedness in the name of the curious god they worship. "'Indeed, yes,' said Henry. "'How confusing it all is, to be sure! But you haven't mentioned the biggest stumbling-block of all, sir—disarmament.' "'Ah, yes, disarmament, as you say, the most tremendous issue of all. And it is, as every one knows, going to be, during this session of the League, decisively dealt with by the Council.' Many a nation, militant from terror, from avarice, from arrogance, or from habit, many a political faction, and many a big business, has a vital interest in hindering disarmament discussions. "'You think, then, that—' "'I will tell you,' said Henry, leaning forward eagerly and lowering his rather high voice, "'what I think. I think that there are those not far from us who have a great deal of money in armaments, and who get nervy whenever the subject comes up. There are things that I know—' I came out here knowing them, and meaning to speak when the time came. Not because it was my duty, which is why, I understand, most people expose others, but because I had a very great desire to. There is someone towards whom I feel a dislike, a very great dislike, I may say hate. He deserves it. He is a most disagreeable person, and has done me, personally, a great injury. Henry was feeling the expanse of influence of the cherry brandy and naturally I wish to do him one in my turn. I have wished it for several years, to be exact, since the year 1919. I have waited and watched. I have always known him to be detestable, but until recently I thought that he was also detestably and invariably in the right, or anyhow that he could not be proved in the wrong. Lately I learned something that altered this opinion. I discovered a thing about him which would, if it were known, having regard to the position he occupies, utterly shame and discredit him. I am now, I have a feeling, on the track of discovering yet another and a worse thing, that he has done away with the elected President of the Assembly, in order to wreck the proceedings so that the armament question should not come up. The armament question. Henry gazed at the ex-cardinal with the wide, ferocious stare of the slightly intoxicated. What would you say if I told you that a certain highly-placed official on the League of Nations Secretariat, has enormous sums of money invested in an armaments business, that he derives nearly all his income from it, that he is the son-in-law of the head of the business, and has in it vast sums which increase at every rumour of war, and which would dwindle away if any extensive disarmament scheme should ever really be seriously contemplated by the nations, that his father-in-law, this munitions prince, is even now in Geneva, privately visiting his daughter and son-in-law, and holding a watching brief on the assembly proceedings, I ask you, what would the League staff say of one of their members of which this should be revealed? Would he be regarded as a fit incumbent of the office he holds? Wouldn't he be dismissed? Kicked out as incompetent? Uh, as unscrupulous, I mean? Henry amended quickly. His voice had risen in a shrill and trembling crescendo of dislike. Dr. Frankie, leaning placidly back in his chair, his delicate fingers stroking a large Persian cat on his knee, shrewdly watched him. I had better say, he observed in his temperate and calming manner, that I believe I know to whom you allude. I have guessed, since I saw you this morning when a certain individual was speaking near you, that you took no favourable view of him, and now I perceive that you are justified. You will be doubly justified if we can prove what I am trying to agree with you is not improbable, that he has indeed made away with this unfortunate Svensson. I am tempted to share your view of this unpleasing person. Among other things he is a Catholic convert as to these we have already exchanged our views. Do you know what I think? This—that Svensson's will not be the only disappearance at Geneva. For what would be the use of getting rid of one man only, however prominent? The assembly, after the first shock, would proceed with its doings. But what if man after man were to disappear? What if the whole fabric of assembly, council, and committees should be disintegrated till no one could have thoughts for anything but the mysterious disappearances and how to solve the riddle? And how still more— to preserve each one himself from a like fate. Could any work be continued in such circumstances, in such an atmosphere? No. The Assembly would become merely a collection of bewildered and nervous individuals turning themselves into amateur detectives, and, incidentally, the laughing-stock of the world. The League might never recover such prestige as it has after such a disastrous session. Mark my words, there will be further attempts on the persons of prominent delegates. Whether they will be successful attempts or not is a question. Who is responsible for them is another question. You say, and I am half with you, our friend of the Secretariat, who had better be nameless until we can bring him to book. Others will say other things. Many will be suspected. Notably, no doubt, the Spanish-Americans, who lend themselves readily to such suspicions. They have that air, and human life is believed not to be unduly sacred to them, Besides, they never got on with Svensson, who is reported to have alluded to them not infrequently as those damned red Indians. The Scandinavian temperament and theirs are so different. I do not even feel sure myself that they are not implicated. The initiation of the affair by our secretariat friend would not, in fact, preclude their participation in it. I had nearly said, show me a Spanish-American, still worse a Portuguese, and I will show you a scoundrel. Nearly, but not quite for it is a mistake to say such things of one's brothers in the League. Besides, I like them. They are pleasing, amusing fellows, and do not rasp one's nerves like the Germans and many others. One can forgive them much. Indeed, one has to. Many people, again, would be glad to put responsibility on the Germans. An unfortunate race, for nothing is so unfortunate as to be unloved. We must discover the truth, Mr. Beechtree. You have a line of inquiry to follow." "'I'm making friends with the fellow-secretary,' said Henry. "'She likes me, I may say, and she talks quite a lot. She would not consciously betray her chief's confidence, though she does not like him. But all the same, I get many clues from her. "'Oh, my God!' The ejaculation, which was made under his breath, was shocked involuntarily out of him by the sight of Dr. Frankie's Persian cat extracting with its paw from a bowl that stood on the terrace balustrade, a large goldfish, and devouring it. After the first glance, Henry looked away, leaning back in his chair, momentarily overcome with a feeling of nausea, which made his face glisten white and damp, and caused the sweat to break hotly on his brow, while the lake swayed and darkened before his eyes. It was a feeling to which he was unfortunately subject when he saw the smaller of God's creatures suffering these mischances at the hands of their larger brethren. His nerves were not strong, and he had an excessive dislike of witnessing unpleasant sights. "'You don't feel well?' Dr. Frankie solicitously inquired. "'The goldfish,' his guest murmured. "'Eaten, alive! What an end!' Dr. Frankie's delicate, dark Latin brows rose. "'The goldfish? Ah, my wicked pelico! I cannot keep him from the bowl, the rascal. I regret that he so upset you the sensibility of goldfish is not great surely as the peasants say non son cretiani loro forgive me to see a live fish devoured it took me unawares i shall be all right soon as from a great distance henry still fighting the sensation of nausea was half aware of the ex-cardinal's piercing eyes fixed on him with extraordinary intensity i am all right now said henry a momentary faintness! Quite absurd! I expect goldfish do not really feel either emotion or pain. They say that fish do not feel hooks, or worms, either. They say all sorts of comforting things about this distressing world, don't they? One should try to believe them all.' "'You are,' said Dr. Frankie, quietly, if I may say so, a decidedly unusual young man.' <laughs> "'Indeed, no,' said Henry. But I have encroached on you long enough. I must go. CHAPTER eighteen, The motor launch churned its foaming path down the moonlit lake. Henry sat in the stern, trailing his fingers in cool phosphorescent water, happy, drowsy, and well-fed. What a delightful evening! What a charming old man! What a divine way of being taken home! and now he had the warm, encouraged feeling of not pursuing a lone trail, for the ex-cardinal's last words to him had been, Coraggio, follow every clue, push home every piece of evidence. Between us we will yet lay this enemy of the public good by the heel. The very thought that they would yet do that flushed Henry's cheek and kindled his eye. Assuredly the wicked should not always flourish like the bay-tree. I went by, and lo, he was not, thought Henry, quoting the queer message received by the President before the first session of the assembly. The launch dashed up to the Quai du Sujet, and Henry presented a franc to the pilot, and stepped off, trying to emulate this gentleman's air of never having visited such a low wharf before. "'You have brought me rather too far,' he said. "'But I will walk back.' But now he came to think of it, Dr. Frankie's man must obviously know where he lived, so camouflage was unavailing. He had intended— only lost in thought he had let the moment pass, to be set down at the Paquis, as if he had been staying on the Quai du Mont-Blanc, or thereabouts. But he had said nothing, and without doubt or hesitation this disagreeable chauffeur, or whatever an electric launchman was called, had made for the Quai du Sujet, and drawn up at it as if he knew, as doubtless he did, that Henry's lodging was in one of the squalid alleys off it. It could not be helped. Things do get about. Henry knew that of old. However, to maintain the effect of his words to the man, he started to walk away from the Saint-Gervais quarter towards the Mont Blanc bridge, until the launch was foaming on its homeward way. Then he retraced his steps. As he passed the end of the bridge, he saw a well-known and characteristic figure, small, trim, elegant, the colour of ivory, clad in faultless evening dress, beneath an equally faultless light coat, standing by the parapet. Someone was with him, talking to him, an equally characteristic figure, less well known to the world at large but not less well known to henry henry stopped abruptly and stood in the shadow of a newspaper kiosk he was not in the least surprised any hour of the day or night did for charles wilbraham to talk to the great he would leave a dinner at the same time as the most important person present in order to accompany him on his way he would waylay cabinet ministers in streets bishops though himself not of their faith in closes and royal personages incognito He would impede their progress, or walk delicately beside them, talking softly, respectfully, with that perfect propriety of diction and address which he had always at command. "'Soapy Sam!' muttered Henry from behind the kiosk. The two on the bridge moved on. They came towards Henry, strolling slowly and talking. The well-known personage was apparently telling an amusing story, for Charles was all attention and all smiles. "'As Chang was saying to me the other night,' Henry prospectively and unctuously quoted Charles. They left the bridge and turned along the Quai du Mont Blanc. Charles's rather high laugh sounded above the current of their talk. They paused at the Hôtel des Berges. The eminent person mounted its steps. Charles accompanied him up the steps and inside. Probably the eminent person wished, by calling on someone there, to shake off Charles before going to his own hotel, but he had not shaken off Charles, who was of a tenacious habit. "'Calling on the Latin Americans,' Henry commented. "'Wants to have a drink and chat without Charles. "'Won't get it, poor chap. "'Well, I shall sleuth around till they come out. "'I'm going to trail Charles home to his bed if it takes all night.' He settled himself on the parapet of the quay and watched the hotel entrance. He did not have to wait long. In some minutes Charles came out alone. He looked, thought Henry, observing him furtively from under his pulled-down hat-brim, a little less elated than he had appeared five minutes earlier. His self-esteem had suffered some blow, thought Henry, who knew Charles's mentality. Mentality! That was the word one used about Charles, as if he had been a German during the late war. Germans having, as all readers of newspapers will remember, mentalities. Charles walked rapidly across the bridge towards the road that led to his own chalet, a mile out of the town. Henry, keeping his distance, hurried after him through the steep, silent, sleeping city, on up to the dusty, tram-lined residential road above it till Charles stopped at a villagate and let himself in. Then Henry turned back, and tramped drowsily down the dusty road beneath the moonless sky, and down through the steep, sleeping city, and across the Pont des Berges, and so to the Quai du Sujet and the Allée Petit Chat, which lay dense and black and warm in shadow, and was full of miawling cats, strange sounds and queer, acrid smells. The drainage system of the Saint-Gervais quarter was crude. In the stifling bedroom of his crazy tenement Henry undressed and sleepily tumbled into his bed, as the city clock struck two. In the dawn, below the mewling of lean cats and the yelping of dogs, he heard the lapping and shuffling of water, and thought of boats and beating oars. Chapter 19 To what cold seas of inquit regret, of passionate agnosticism as to the world's meanings, if any, does one too often wake and know not why? Henry on some mornings would wake humming, as the queer phrase goes, with prosperity, and spring warm and alive to welcome the new day. On other mornings it would be as if he shivered perplexed on the brink of a fathomless abyss, and life engulfed him like chill waters, and he would strive defensively to divest himself of himself and be but as one of the millions of the ant-like creatures that scurry over the earth's face, of no more significance to himself than were the myriad others. He could just achieve this state of impersonality while he lay in bed, but when he got up, stood on the floor, looked at the world no longer from beyond its rim, but from within its coils, he became again enmeshed, a creature crying, I, 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 a child wanting pear's soap and never getting it, a pilgrim here on earth, and stranger. Then the seas of desolation would swamp him, and he would sink and sink, tumbled in their bitter waves. In such a mood of causeless sorrow he woke late on the morning after he had dined with Dr. Frankie to keep it at arm's length he lay and stared at his crazy broken shutters off which the old paint flaked and thought of the infinite strangeness of all life a pastime which very often engaged him then he thought of some one whom he very greatly loved and was refreshed by that thought and indeed to love and be loved very greatly is the one stake to cling to in these troubled seas the one unfailing life-buoy then turning his mind into practical channels he thought of hate and of charles wilbraham and of how best to strive that day to compass him about with ruin. So meditating, he splashed himself from head to foot with cold water, dressed and sallied forth from his squalid abode to the nearest café. Coffee and rolls and the Swiss morning papers in the clear, jolly air of the September morning put heart into him as he sat outside the café by the lake. Opening his paper, he read of the femme coupée en morceaux and l'affaire Svensen, and then a large heading Disparution de Lord Burnley. Henry started. Here was news indeed. And he had failed to get hold of it for his paper. Lord Burnley, it seemed, had been strolling alone about the city in the late afternoon. Many people had seen him in the Rue de la Cité and the neighbourhood. He had even been observed to enter a bookshop. The rest was silence. From that bookshop he had not been seen to emerge. The bookseller affirmed that he had left after spending a few minutes in the shop. No further information was to hand. Chercher la femme one comic paper had the audacity to remark à propos l'affaire svensson and burnley even svensson and burnley so pure-hearted so public-spirited so league-minded were not immune from such ill-bred aspersions chapter twenty the elegant and scholarly spaniard luis vaga strolled by he wore a canary-coloured waistcoat and walked like a fastidious and graceful bullfinch he stopped beside henry's breakfast-table cocked his head on one side, and said, "'Hullo. Good morning. Heard the latest news?' Henry admitted that he had heard no news later than that in the morning press. "'Cheng's gone now,' said Vaga. "'Gone to join Svensson and Burnley. I regret to say that he was last seen, late last night, paying a call on my fellow-countrymen from South America, at Les Berges Hotel. Serious suspicion rests on these gentlemen, for poor Chang has not been heard of since.' "'Somehow,' Henry said thoughtfully, I am not surprised. L'addition, s'il vous plaît. No, I cannot say I am surprised. I rather thought that there would be more disappearances very shortly. Burnley and Chang. A good hall. Who saw him going into the Berg? Our friend Wilberham, who was out late with him last night. And the Berg people don't deny it. But they say he left again soon after midnight. The hall porter, who has, it is presumed, been corrupted, confirms this. But he never returned to his hotel. Poor Burnley and Chang. Two good talkers. Scholars and charming fellows. There are a few such in this vulgar age. It is taking the best, this unseen hand that strikes down our delegates in their prime. So many could be spared. But God's will must be done. These South Americans are its very fitting tools, for they don't care what they do, reckless fellows. Mind you, I don't accuse them. Personally, I should be more inclined to suspect the Zionists, or the Bolshevik refugees, or your Irishmen, or some of the unprotected minorities, or the Poles, or the Anti-Vivisection League, were very fierce. But for choice, the Poles. Anyhow, as regards Burnley, there were certain words once publicly spoken by Burnley to the Polish delegation about General Zeligovsky, which have rankled ever since. Zeligovsky has many wild disbanded soldiers at his command. However, Chang, anyhow, went to see the South Americans and has not emerged. There we are. There we are. Henry thoughtfully agreed, as they strolled over the Pont du Mont Blanc. And what, then, is Wilbraham's explanation of the affair Chang? Vaga shrugged his shoulders. Our friend Wilburham is too discreet to make allegations. He merely states the fact that he saw Chang into the berg between twelve and one, and left him there. I gather that he accompanied him into the hotel, but did not stay there long himself. I can detect a slight acrimony in his manner on the subject, and deduce from it that he was not, perhaps, encouraged by Dr. Chang or his hosts, to linger. I flatter myself I know Wilbraham's mentality fairly well, if one may be permitted that rather opprobrious word. "'Yes, indeed,' Henry said. "'It is precisely what Wilbraham has. I know it well.' "'In that case, I believe, if you had heard Wilbraham on this matter of his call at Les Berges, that you would agree with me that his importance suffered there some trifling eclipse.' "'There may be other reasons,' said Henry, in this case, for the manner you speak of. But I won't say any more now.' He bit off the stream of libel that had risen to his lips, and armed himself in a careful silence, while the Spaniard cocked an inquiring dark eye at his brooding profile. In the Jardin Anglais they overtook Dr. Frankie and his niece, making their way to the assembly hall. The ex-cardinal was greatly moved. "'Poor Dr. Chang!' he lamented. "'And Burnley, too, of all men! A wit, a scholar, a philosopher, a metaphysician, a theologian, a man of affairs—' in fine a man one could talk to what a mind i am greatly attached to lord burnley they must be found gentlemen alive or unthinkable thought dead they must be found the assembly must do nothing else until this sinister mystery is unravelled we must employ detectives we must follow every clue miss longfellow said my isn't it all quite too terribly sinister don't you think so mr beechtree henry said he did and of section five